0: Please remain standing. And I'm going to make a quick change here. Sometimes there's a little bit of a gap between when the bulletin gets done and when the sermon takes shape. Um, we are not going to cover all of Jonah chapter 1 today. And because we're only going to cover the first three verses, uh, we're also going to change the New Testament reading to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, verses 19 to 22. I think you'll be glad we didn't do the whole chapter. And the first three verses are very um, important for setting up the rest of the book. So let's read John chapter 20, verses 19 to 22. This is after Jesus' resurrection. And it says, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, All right, now let's turn back to Jonah, chapter 1. Jonah 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Before we begin studying chapter 1, I want to begin this whole study of the book of Jonah by pointing you ahead to what is really the key verse of the entire book, and that is chapter 2 verse 9, last line of Jonah's prayer from the belly of the fish, where he says, Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Now, as we go through this book, what I want us to do is to hold that great statement up as high as we can and look at it from many different angles as this book shows it to us. Because this is a book about the sovereign grace of god in the salvation of sinners it is about how god sovereignly calls sinners and sovereignly saves sinners and how he sovereignly sends how he sovereignly sends sinners to gather other sinners to experience that same sovereign salvation salvation belongs to the lord And that is why we come when he calls us to come to him, and that is also why we go when he calls us to go to the nations and also to our neighbors. So for today, I'd like us to start exploring that one great theme of the book of Jonah just by looking at these first three verses, verse 1, the messenger, verse 2, the mission, and verse 3, the misdirection, the messenger, the mission, and the misdirection. So first, then, the messenger. Um, Jonah, I think we could say, is one of the more famous characters in the Bible. A lot of people know the story of him being swallowed by the great fish and everything, but um, not as many people know. I think that there is an earlier chapter in Jonah's life that's told in a different part of the Bible. Um, maybe you could think of it as the prequel <laughs> to the book of Jonah, and that is back in 2 Kings chapter 14. I actually want to invite you to turn there. 2 Kings 14... Uh, beginning in verse twenty-three. Okay, um, so it says in the fiftieth—sorry, uh, in the fifteenth year of Amaziah the son of Joash, king of Judah. Jeroboam the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned forty-one years. Let me just stop there. This is the king we usually call Jeroboam the Second. Um, he was quite a strong king in a very long reign, but he was just as wicked as the original Jeroboam who started the northern kingdom of Israel. Um, it says, And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, that's Jeroboam I, which he made Israel to sin. Um, and yet, even though Jeroboam II was a wicked king, uh, he lived during a time when the Lord was still continuing to show his patience uh, with the northern kingdom. That final judgment had not fallen yet. And so it goes on. He, Jeroboam II, actually restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah. And here it is. According to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from gath Hafer. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, implied there is yet, because the Lord would eventually say that, at least with regard to the northern kingdom. So he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Now, <clears throat> notice here how Jonah is described as Lord's servant. Uh, We want to understand Jonah is not just a random guy off the street. He's not just your average Israelite. And so we we should resist the tendency to to treat Jonah as um, kind of a neutral, everyman kind of character. Um, He he already had this special calling, this office, as God's messenger to Israel um, before he ever received the call to go to Nineveh. He's a prophet. And that's why the Book of Jonah comes to us not in the historical books, but in the Minor Prophets, in the books of the prophets. Um, Sinclair Ferguson, in his little book on Jonah called uh, "Man Overboard," charming title. Uh, he makes uh, this background of Jonah in Second Kings as the servant of the Lord. Um, uh, he makes he made, makes makes um, some important points from this. That I think are helpful. Jonah's great failure, his great sin, uh, come against the backdrop of this past, this identity, this prior service to God and to Israel. He draws what I think is very important application here, especially for those of us who have been walking with the Lord for a long time. So hear this. He reminds us. I'm going to quote him. He says, No privilege no privilege nor all past privileges together no past obedience nor fruitfulness in service can substitute for present obedience to the word of god and he encourages each us each to ask ourselves am i living am i living with only the memories of obedience in my life am i substituting my past spiritual record for the pressing responsibility of present submission to the will of God. Think on that. Now this this prior identity of Jonah is, is important for another reason. This is the the first place that I want us to see that big idea of the Lord's sovereignty coming to the fore here, that, that bigness, that what's sometimes called the godness of God, and this idea that salvation belongs to the Lord. Who is Jonah? He is the Lord's servant. See, Jonah needed to know As we sometimes confess together that I am not my own, but I belong body and soul to the Lord. The attitude of any servant of the Lord should be, as Augustine famously said, Lord, command what you will and give what you command. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He is in absolute authority over how his salvation is accomplished and how it's communicated because he is God. He is God, and we are not. We are his servants. We belong to him. Of course, that whole picture, that whole picture is shaken up for Jonah when he encounters this particular life-changing command that the Lord gives to him in verse 2 of our sermon text. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up, before me. Okay, I mentioned earlier that uh, during the reign of King Jeroboam II of Israel, the most powerful empire in the ancient Near Eastern world uh, was the empire of Assyria, and um, the capital city of the Assyrians was this Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Uh, this is there. You can uh, the ruins have been excavated today. They are near um, the city of Mosul in Iraq. Um, So the next time you're in Iraq, you can go visit Nineveh. Um, Now, just a few few decades after Jeroboam II and Jonah's lifetime, Assyria, as many of you know, is the empire that is going to overrun the northern kingdom um, in a very total way. It's the Assyrians in 722 B.C., who put an end to the northern kingdom and uh, carry all of its people into permanent exile. It was um, God's final climactic judgment after those ten tribes had repeatedly, over and over and over, kept on worshiping idols, kept on rejecting the warnings of the prophets, now, that wouldn't happen until a little bit later. Like I said, it would be several decades after Jeroboam II's reign. And in fact, during Jeroboam II's reign, the Assyrian Empire, uh, according to historians, was actually going through a time of kind of internal instability. And so as we think about how would Jonah have viewed the Assyrians, how would he have viewed going to Nineveh, I think uh, we could say he probably would have seen Assyria as as a, a threat to Israel, as kind of this powerful foreign menace. Um. But we should be cautious because I'm not sure he would have seen the Assyrians as an, as an active, live enemy at war with Israel at that time, uh, as a, a clear and present danger. Uh, and sometimes that may get overstated when we think about the relationship between Jonah and Nineveh. Um, nevertheless, nevertheless, this is a very unusual command. and Why is that? Well, when, usually when you see the Old Testament prophets prophesying, where are they prophesying? What people are they proph- prophesying to? If you're an Israelite prophet, well, you prophesy in Israel because they're the covenant people after all, right? They're the ones who you'd expect to receive the word of God. They're the ones who have the word of God in the books of Moses, Mo- Moses being the great kind of archetypal prophet of Israel. The Assyrians, on the other hand, is, are this faraway nation, far to the northeast of Israel, up in Mesopotamia. And and Israelite prophets just don't go to Nineveh because... Um, Nineveh—it's it's, it's this Gentile nation that's far away, have nothing to do with the covenant people. <clears throat> Nineveh is a very surprising target for this mission. Nineveh is going to hear now a word from God. There's another scholar named Brian Estelle who points out something very important here, though. I think it's really transformational for thinking about the Book of Jonah. We have to remember that this is by no means the first time that a prophet has been sent to a Gentile audience. And he points this particularly in the books of Kings to the example of Elijah and Elisha. Both of them uh, ministered before the ministry of Jonah. For example, in 1 Kings 17, the Lord sends Elijah to Zarephath. Remember the widow of Zarephath. That's in Sidon, to the north of Israel, Gentile territory. And then through Elijah, the Lord um, rescues and blesses uh, that widow and her son. And then later in chapter 19, the Lord uh, tells Elijah not only to anoint Jehu to be king of Israel, he also tells him to anoint a new king for Syria. Not, Not Assyria, but Syria, a much closer neighboring nation. Hazael was going to be the new king of Syria. And so not only Israel, this is the point, not only Israel, but this pagan Gentile nation Syria was also supposed to get an authoritative prophetic message from the Lord. So this is not completely novel from one point of view, what God is telling Um, Jonah to do. However, we could also say even those examples are not as extreme as this one. Sidon and Syria were very close neighbors of Israel. Nineveh is leagues and leagues away. And so there's no doubt that the Lord is telling Jonah to do something extraordinary here. But in principle, in principle, and this is what Brian Estelle wants us to see, in principle, the, the prophetic word had already been extended beyond Israel to the Gentiles. This is consistent, in fact, with Israel's whole identity and mission as a nation. You might think sending a prophet to Nineveh seems to contradict Israel's identity as a nation. Not so! Because from the very beginning, remember God's promise to Abraham where he said, In you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Remember Psalm 67, that great missionary psalm, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. That your way may be known on earth. Your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Isaiah 49. I will make you a light for the nations. That my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. That is an Old Testament concept. Not only a New Testament concept. It was baked in to Israel's mission. uh, And Israel's identity. All along from Abraham on. Israel was to be a missionary nation. Now they repeatedly failed to live up to that mission throughout their history. Nonetheless, God here is calling Jonah, yes, to an extraordinary task, but it's not one that he should have seen as totally out of the blue. Jonah, in other words, could not have responded to this command by saying, well, that's not my job. That's not my problem. That's not what I signed up for. Why? Because he was an Israelite. And to be an Israelite... Was to have a mission to the world beyond Israel. This is the second place where we see that sovereignty of God displayed in these opening verses. That salvation belongs to the Lord. See, God is just as sovereign over Nineveh as he is over Israel. Israel does not have some kind of exclusive lock on God's attention. There is no non-compete clause prohibiting the Lord from making Himself known to this other nation. Then, of a why? Because He is God. Because salvation belongs to the Lord. And if Jonah had been paying attention to the history and the whole identity, the whole concept of what makes Israel Israel in God's sight, then he might have caught that bigger covenant vision. The Lord wanted his people to have for the nations. Now, you may be thinking right now, boy, it sounds like Zach is just preaching Acts all over again. Has he just not gotten out of Acts mode? <laughs> um, which we just finished last week. Um, well, I hope that you are hearing some echoes from our Acts series here. And it's not just because I'm stuck in that mode. It's because there are many parallels, really, between uh, particularly the last few chapters of Acts and the book of Jonah, especially think of the storm at sea and Paul's um, mission. Paul in Acts is carrying out this mission that I'm talking about, this mission of Israel to the nations. The same mission Jonah is calling jo- uh, the, the same mission the Lord is calling Jonah to carry out here. Only um, Paul is carrying out from the perspective of fulfillment. The Lord is calling Jonah to carry it out from the perspective. of of expectation. But it's the same mission. And the message that he carries does not sound like a good news message, right? Um, It's it's actually a bad news message. It's a message of judgment. It says, call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But of course, we know the end of the story, right? What happens when Jonah finally does proclaim that uh, message Uh, The result is repentance, and that repentance ends in mercy. But we could really say it begins in mercy. Even though this is a bad news message, even though he's being called to cry out against Nineveh, you have to understand, final judgment, final judgment where there's no hope left, that's what happens when God stops giving warnings. When he stops bringing the bad news. See, what a mercy. What a privilege for Nineveh of all places. This this pagan, idol worshipping, power hungry, vicious, violent civilization. That's what the Assyrians were like. What a privilege for this city to receive a word of god a word of God of any kind. And as soon as we say that, we have to think what a what a privilege, not a right, it is for any of us to receive any word of God of any kind. Even if it is that stern voice of the law pointing out our sin and our need and driving us to our knees. What a mercy. What a mercy not to be left to ourselves just to drift along in our lost condition, not realizing the terrible position that we are in. This mission of Jonah was to be a mission of mercy towards Nineveh, towards the nations, even though the message that he bore was a stern message. And it is fundamentally the same mission that Paul had, uh, just with a lot more salvation history under the bridge, and supremely, of course, the coming of Christ, which changes a great deal. We'll talk about that more as we go on. Okay, now Jonah, of course... um, relates to Paul not so much by way of comparison as by contrast, right? Because um, Jonah does not want this mission. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, uh, there's some debate about the exact location of this place, Tarshish, but uh, it's probably referring to a port that was all the way on the western end of the Mediterranean Sea in what we now call Spain. Now, if you were an Israelite, Spain would just feel like the ends of the earth, right? It would feel really far away, about as far away as you could possibly get. And uh, importantly, it's in the opposite direction um, that Jonah would have needed to go if he wanted to go to Nineveh. Because Nineveh was to the northeast. Tarshish is far to the west across the sea. Nineveh is inland, away from the Mediterranean Um, And what I find so stunning about this is not so much Jonah's reluctance, his desire to flee, that's tragic, it's disappointing, but it's not stunning. What's stunning here is that he acts as though, whether, whether he really believes this inside or not, he acts as though by fleeing to Tarshish, he could somehow get away, he could somehow get away from the presence of the Lord. Did Jonah really think, uh, like maybe the Canaanite prophets around him, would have thought that God was some kind of uh, local deity who had to, you know, you had to be near Israel for God to have, for for the Lord to have power over you. Um, it doesn't say what was in Jonah's mind. It uh, doesn't tell us of Jonah's kind of theology at this moment, his, his doctrine of God and God's omnipresence. It doesn't tell us... what was was going on inwardly. What it tells us, though, is that he acted as though, he acted as though God's presence was limited. And listen, that is something that people with very, very good theology, knowledge, do all the time. It's something that we do when we live as though, we live as though what we've learned about God isn't really true. Even if we're still giving mental assent to it or paying it lip service, it's what we're doing So many times when we sin, when we choose to sin, we're convincing ourselves. We're convincing ourselves in that moment of choice that God doesn't see. God doesn't care. It's a very short step from that to simply God isn't there. Jonah wants to get away from the presence of God. Doesn't he know? Doesn't he know? It's like we were singing earlier. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Psalm 139. There is no fleeing from the presence of the omnipresent God. Everywhere, present God. I've told you before about that magnet that we had on the fridge in our kitchen when I was growing up that had that Latin motto on it. Summoned or not summoned, God is present. In other words, whether you want Him there or not, God is there. Now, <clears throat> notice here, as, as uh, commentator Estelle does, um, how beginning in verse 3, beginning in verse 3, Jonah begins to go down. He went down to Joppa. He paid the fare and went down into the ship, down, down to this trajectory that Jonah has set himself on. So he tries to get away from God, and that's not where the downward trajectory is going to end, right? It's going to end in the sea. Now, as we think about this related to ourselves, I think that there is a uh, kind of a broader and a narrower application. Uh, Broadly, Jonah's choice here illustrates for us what it's like any time a Christian deliberately chooses to disobey the word of God. And in, in particular, in particular, it shows us the folly, it shows us the futility, how it doesn't make sense to act as though the Lord doesn't see, as though the Lord doesn't care, as though the Lord isn't there. As though we can really somehow escape from his presence and just do our own thing without consequences, like a child who shuts his eyes and thinks that because his eyes are shut, his parents can't see him. Beloved, there is nowhere that you can go away from the presence of the Lord. And of course, that's very good news, isn't it? That's very good news for us. And yet, it's news that should give us pause, sober us when we are facing that moment of temptation. And sin is telling us the Lord doesn't see, doesn't care, and isn't there. Well, to give us a little bit narrower of an application, a little more specific, we need to understand that, similar to Jonah, we, all of us, everyone, have a calling to carry a message from God, a call that is just as clear and certain as Jonah's, given to us in a different way. I'm not saying that we each need to be listening for a still small voice from God to give us our own personal message or our own personal mission to a mission to a particular group of people, not at all. It is given to us in the Word of God, though, that way that God now reveals Himself to His people in the Scriptures. And in the scriptures, we have been given a mission. We have been given a call. We all have been sent. We have been sent to carry on Christ's mission in the world. And yet, like Jonah, how reluctant we are actually to carry it out. And whether it's out of fear, whether it's out of selfish pride, whether it's just out of sloth or just distraction, busyness, misplaced priorities, how often must we confess that our focus, our energies, our time have been misdirected, misdirected. Lord Jesus has sent us out into the world to be his witnesses. But when it comes to the actual individuals that God has placed in our paths from day to day, so often in our actual choices, what we're doing is we're retreating, we're avoiding, we're making a point of not engaging. It's amazing how much effort it can take not to engage with our neighbors, the people around us, not to move towards those people in love and genuine care for their care for their eternal destiny, care for the glory of God to become real in their lives. You've heard the, the joke, you know, I love humanity, it's people I can't stand. I think there's a, something going on like that in our view of evangelism sometimes. I love evangelism. I just don't want to talk about Jesus with these people. <laughs> these people that I actually know that I actually interact with day to day, I would rather go somewhere else and evangelize to people that I don't know or imagine doing that. And, and we act as though, we'd never say it, but we act as though the Lord doesn't see that ambivalence and that neglect, as though the Lord doesn't care, as though the Lord isn't there. We all have, <coughs> I think, more of Jonah in us than we really would like to admit. This is just one of many ways that we're going to see in this book. That the Lord holds the book of Jonah and the life of Jonah up to us as a mirror to bring us to the end of ourselves. And to drive us to an ever deeper gratitude that he has a much, much better servant than any of us and a much, much A much better servant than Jonah, a much better prophet, a much better savior. Because salvation, brothers and sisters, salvation belongs to the Lord. See, he has saved us from our Jonah-like failings by giving us a prophet much better than Jonah, the Lord Jesus. You know what I'm saying. Here the Lord Jesus who received from his father a mission, right? He was sent by his father on a mission much more difficult, much more costly and humiliating and painful and brutal to endure than this little trip to Nineveh was going to require of Jonah. Jesus' mission was a mission of suffering and rejection and crucifixion and death. But The Lord Jesus... And faced with that moment of choice, he did not run the other way. He said, not my will, but yours. And for the joy that he was able to see with the eyes of faith and hope that was before him, he was able to endure that cross that his father required him to carry. If Jonah thought the people of Nineveh were unworthy, of getting a message from God. What do you think Jesus might have concluded if he had looked honestly, surveyed this motley group of people that the Father had sent him to save? Talking about us. We're much more like Nineveh than we'd like to admit. And yet, he did look honestly at that group of people, that motley group. And yet he came, and yet he did not run from it, from that work of saving us. Beloved, it's in the Lord Jesus that we see more clearly than anywhere else that salvation belongs to the Lord. That salvation belongs to that Lord, to the Lord Jesus Christ, our great prophet, and that great servant of God. And it's because we belong to to him. It is because we are his servants, the servant of that great servant with a capital S. That's It's because we have received that great commission from his hand. That is our reason to obey. That is our reason to follow. That is our reason to speak and not be silent. To go and not hold back or run the other way and to care. To care more about our witness and his glory than we care about our reputation. They care more about the souls of the people around us than we care about our own convenience. Listen, Jonah was called to go to Nineveh. He was called to go there. You and I are living in Nineveh. We are already there. And our master has commissioned us. As we read at the very beginning. As the father has sent me. Even so, I am sending you. Receive the Holy Spirit. He's given us the command. He's given us the power. Let's not run the other way. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this book. We thank you for all of the ways that you show us the great weakness and failings of your servants way you show us our own weakness and failings as in a mirror, time after time. But you also show us through these uh, sinful people of the scriptures as through a window you show us the Lord Jesus Christ, our great servant, great prophet, our great savior. Lord, salvation belongs to you and we pray that you would help us to bow the knee in trust, in reliance, and in obedience to answer your call, to come when you say come, and to go where you've told us to go. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.